I want you to open up to Philippians chapter 3. One person was saying, you psyched us out, Dave. We finished 2 Timothy. I was thinking Titus this week, but no, we're over in Philippians 3. I've got to keep you guys on your toes. Uh, Your prodigal pastor has returned. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was preaching in Santa Rosa for Foster the City, and that went great. Um, By the way, um, if you ever come kind of lukewarm to church, let me give you a little tip. Uh, We left San Jose uh, at 7 a.m. and drove uh, all along the peninsula along 280, cool fog rolling in, crossed the Golden Gate Bridge all the way up to Santa Rosa before church. The entire way, we're listening to worship songs and just sort of talking about the Lord and the beauty of creation. We were so fired up by the first note of worship at church, I thought, really, I should prescribe this to all of our church members. Just go for a two-hour worship service leading up to church. Even if you live closer than that, you will be fired up and ready to be here at church. Um, Last week, I was in Atlanta um, worshiping with my brother in his church after a conference there that I was there with the Foster City team. Um, And uh, it was really spectacular. 45 different countries were represented at this conference. 2,000 people all around the area of orphan care, um, just all over the world. So it was really profound. It was a little bit like a a mini Urbana, come to think of it. There was a lot of different languages represented, prayers. uh, So powerful to hear prayers in other languages every single session. So it was really uh, great stuff. I will get to Philippians 3 in a moment, um, so it's actually going to be a long moment, so don't panic that we're going to do some things leading up to it. Uh, this Sunday is a really strategic Sunday. It's our community group on-ramp, and, um, and the whole sort of thrust of it is going to be along those lines. Uh, on the count of three, here's what I want you to do. I want you to point in church, okay? I want you to point at the person in your family, or if your community group is here, uh, you can point to the person in your community group um, that is the one who is told most often to get going, to hurry up, let's go, we're, we're already late, come on, okay? Now, listen, hang on, on the count of three, you're going to point to this person, and this is a place of truth and no shame. This is just truth-telling, all this is. Okay, so point, listen, Point in love, okay? Now, if you're a person who you're like, oh, I know who that is, but they're not here, you can just point at them in your mind, okay? One, two, three. All right. Cassie, you're getting multiple votes, by the way. Okay, now, I want you on the count of three, not yet, on the count of three, you are going to point at the person in your crew who is the time taskmaster, The one who is usually the one saying, let's go, come on, it's time to roll, it's already time to be there, that kind of thing. On the count of three, one, two, three. All right, some of you, yeah, some of you know your struggles. Uh, All right, now here's the beauty. Uh, If you are married, you already know this. If you're not married, think about this. These two people are not in competition. They actually work in concert with each other. If you think of it in terms of, wow, your skill set of being late and being need to be told to get moving really augments my amazing ability to keep track of time. You can tell which side uh, that I fall on. Um, But also, this is where sparks fly, right? This is an opportunity to all of a sudden have it be competing and trying to get your spouse, your child, your friend, your roommate, your community group leader to get on the same page with you. 
the Bible is a go book. The Bible is a go book written by a go God. And when you become a Christian, something happens. The spirit of the risen Jesus Christ actually indwells you. You are literally possessed by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, who is God, who wrote the Go book about God, is himself the one that empowers, enables us, and calls us to get moving. In eternity past, Jesus existed. Jesus is the ruler of rulers whose rightful place is the throne. If you're taking notes, jot down Psalm 93.2. You can look this up later. Psalm 93.2 says this. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So when we sing about King Jesus, I hope that your vision Gradually over time, as you sit under the teaching and worship ministry of this church, I hope your vision of Jesus is that of the ruler of rulers, the king of kings, the name above all names, who has always existed, whose rightful place has always been the throne, and yet, who is worshipped because of some things that have taken place. Is his rightful place the throne that was established of old and from everlasting? Absolutely. But not only that, Philippians 2, a chapter before where we're going to look at today, says this. That God the Father, have you heard the Trinity so far this morning? God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father, has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him what a beautiful name it is, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whenever we utter the name of Jesus, that's who we're talking about. His throne is from everlasting. That's his rightful place. God the Father has placed on him the name that is above every name. Sooner or later, every knee is going to bow to this ruler. Every tongue will give homage to who Jesus actually is. And yet, Jesus got moving. He didn't have to, but he willingly chose to. Why? Jesus moved from his rightful place on the throne. Think about this, because he was moved. He was moved in love and mercy for lost sinners. That's what got him moving. He was moved in compassion for sinners. It made him, his love drove him to get up and go. He didn't hold on to his rightful place of rule and comfort and reign. In love, he let go of all of that. And he moved into our neighborhood. 
Last week was incredible. One of the things I realized about this conference, I kind of weigh my time and say, is it worth me going to the Christian Alliance for Orphans conference um, again this year? It was in Atlanta this time. And we made the decision, yes, that was a good thing to do. We have some new teammates. As you know, Foster City is now in Orange County and now in Nevada. And so even just the time together, sort of binding uh, our hearts together and hearing one another's story, most of our work is done virtually uh, with, with, those other, with those other regions. But one of the things I realize about this conference is every year my heart breaks for the things that breaks the heart of God. I am rebroken. I am retaken in. I am retenderized to the plight of a soul, a single individual person without a family. And it's motivating, friends. It's deeply motivating. My heart isn't only broken, my heart is actually filled up with the amazing things that God is doing through very, very ordinary individuals and families and couples and organizations around the world. Stories that you would have to go and hunt for. Because is it true that most of our screens and clickbait and news is not good news? Much of it is not that inspiring. Much of our movies, you look for a movie, just say, I want a movie about a story worth telling. It's hard to find sometimes. A lot of crime stuff. Woohoo! I heard some amazing stories. Our family devotions this week has been filled with just telling some of the stories that I heard from the individuals who lived it. Incredible things that God's doing around the world. I was also taken back to our own adoption story, and I just want to share with you something. That is this, that after our first adoption, um, we joyfully added Cassie to our family. And uh, my wife had always dreamt of having a lot of children, and by a lot I mean 10. That to me was a lot, that to her is not that many. And so we at this point had five, and, uh, and she really felt this burden, this burden to say time is ticking, and I really think God has more children for us in our family. And I didn't share that burden with her. We weren't synced up on the same page. And some of you heard this part of the story before, but there came a point. My wife is not a nag. A nagging person is really hard to live with. There's a proverb that literally says this. It's better to go live on the corner of a rooftop than to live with a nagging spouse. If you want your spouse to change, nagging them is a terrible plan. My wife began to nag me about adoption. She didn't want to do that. I didn't want her doing that. And so we had a conversation one time, and she said, she said, Dave, I don't know how to share with you this burden I have. I really think it's from the Lord, and, and it, I sense that it's nagging. It's kind of pulling us apart. So we just began to pray, and the strategy we came up with was this. I said, I'm filled with the needs of people at church. I'm serving and counseling and preaching and doing these things, tending to to a growing church. And I don't see the needs of people in a faraway country. So when you read blogs or books or articles, instead of sending me an entire book or an entire article, would you send me the paragraph that you think I should read? Would you send me just the chapter of a book or a quote that kind of is moving you so you can begin to do that? And I will open myself up to see if if we can share the, the, the burden. Let me tell you that after one week of doing that, 
I didn't come around and say, okay, we'll get what you want. I shared her burden of saying, we have to do this. What else would we give our lives to? God united us through hearing about needs. It was the Lord's work that did that, not Becky's work. And here's what's really powerful. An international adoption requires you to make yourself uncomfortable, leave your rightful place in your home, in your rhythms, in your life, and at great personal cost and the cost of a community, leave somewhere, go to a foreign place that's foreign to you, that isn't comfortable, that speaks a different language, has a different food. And that's what we did. We got moving. Why? Because we were moved by need. We've learned so much in adoption and parenting about the heart of the father for his people. So how did history get to the point where Jesus needed to leave his throne and enter the story as a man? Well, we're going to start at the Genesis, the beginning. And what I want to do is I want to take you on sort of an, over, an overview, a 10,000-foot plane ride over the story of Scripture Part of why we sang What a Beautiful Name is. That's a song that covers the scope of Scripture. God creates, and then he creates some more, and then he creates some more. And finally, his crowning achievement is man and woman. God dreamt up what we now take for granted. The good creation that we see came from the mind of God and was spoken into existence by his word. I want you to pause, and I just want you to think about that. My brain has exploded with beauty. The last three weeks, I have taken in a lot of beauty. You want to know how to restore my soul? That's one of the ways. I want you to pause and think about your happy place, about the most beautiful thing you can envision, about the everyday little normal things that are all around you. Pause and just take this in. God spoke these things into being. God created these things. And then this crowning achievement of man and woman. And God's declaration over our first parents was what? Very good. I'm not going to make you turn and say something corny, but just look around you for a second. The individuals you are seeing, the moving, living human beings that you see, all different shells on the outside, hear me. God speaks this blessing over you. You are very good. God created you. God thought you up. That's so incredibly moving. You've never met a normal, mere human person. You've met a very good, created being that will last forever and came from the mind and mouth of God. It was all good, Until it became very bad. And it became very bad because, hear me, sin ruins everything. You might be getting away with it. You might be enjoying it for a season. You might be enjoying it for what appears like a long season. You might get involved in it because other people seem to be enjoying it. Hear me, sin ruins everything. You want to trace your problems back to something? It's sin. Short and simple. Every single time. So by choice of Adam and Eve, sin enters the world. 
and God commands them out. God commands them to get moving. Go out from the garden of Eden. Work the ground by sweat. Birth your children in pain. And I hear a great amen from the ladies. God is moved by love for his creation. And in his love, in his care, in his wisdom, in his justice, in all the godness that makes God God, he says, out from the Garden of Eden. What flows from the heart of God? He is one slow to anger. Steadfast love is what his character is. Compassion and mercy. So in his mercy, he extends mercy and calls people to himself. How does he do that? Listen to all of the goes that I'm going to walk you through. Genesis chapter 7. We're only seven verses in, or seven chapters in. So settle in for a good long afternoon, okay? Just kidding. Go into the ark. Genesis 46. Go into Egypt. By the way, don't be afraid. I'm going to make you into a great nation. By the time we get to Exodus, he says this, go into the wilderness. By the time we get to Deuteronomy 1, he says, go into Canaan. Now, I've just walked you through much of Israel's history. It's here in modern-day Israel that God gave the people a land and a name and a history. And all through this history, all through this timeline, God keeps dropping hints, keeps leaving clues, keeps making bold, plain statements about an arrival, about an advent, about a Messiah that is coming one day who would save and redeem and rule forever. And this is what gets us back to the eternally existing Jesus Christ who goes into the world. And when Jesus, moved by love, gets moving and comes to earth, the whole history of the world shifts on its axis. Things fundamentally change with the arrival of Jesus. His blood sacrifice, his payment for sin, his life ransomed for sinners. If you're new to the Christian story and unclear what it's all about, let me give you this succinct story. That all who are in him are now acquitted. That means set free from the penalty and the power of sin. Jesus invites by faith to come be friends with him. And we will be in him, and we're now acquitted. But all in him also now walk and live in freedom, no longer held bondage to Satan, the ruler of this age. So how are God's people now to behave? If you read the Old Testament, and I hope you do, at this church, we love the Old Testament. We talk about it a lot. We see a path laid out always pointing to Christ. We get to see, kind of looking back through the Jesus lens, what was, what was kind of being built towards. But what are God's people to do now? How are they to behave? In the Old Testament, it was separate from the world, from other nations, from other cultures, because their uncleanness would affect you, infect you. So holiness is set apart. So rules and regulations and feasts and temples that say, Gentiles, you don't get to go be a part of those things because you're outside. 
Jesus comes and he changes all of that. What does Jesus do? He goes into the unclean places. He goes and, and dines with the unclean people. He's constantly doing things that are upsetting people. And instead of being infected by the virus of their sin, think about this. Jesus is going into the dark places, and as light does, light invades the darkness and wins out every time. Unclean people, Gentiles, others, outsiders, the darkest of the dark, are now infected by the life of Jesus. Totally different than what God was doing leading up in the Old Testament. All of this 10,000-foot scope of history is leading up to this point, okay? This one single truth. We Christians, I'm talking to Christians now. Those who say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. We Christians are to get moving. Christians are to get moving. Not into an ark to keep them safe from the storm. Not into Egypt to be shaped into a people through hardship which is what happened, not into the wilderness as discipline, not into Canaan as conquerors. We are to get moving and go, where? Into all the world. Does this sound familiar? We've arrived at Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus' final words to his followers, directly down the lineage to us. Get moving. Go into all the world as God's ambassadors, as witnesses to his name. And when we say his name, by the way, we're talking about his character and his acts. When I think about Eugene, I think about Eugene and I go, what is Eugene's character, but also what does he do? What I think about him is tied intimately not just to one or the other. It's not just the acts or just the character. Those meld together. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. He's powerful in his character, his example, but he's powerful in his actual deeds, in his acts. So moved by love, Jesus got moving. Think about this. Moved by love, the spirit of the risen Jesus tells us, get moving. Go, get, time's a ticking. So that's what this morning is about. Life with Jesus is entering a race to run. Life with Jesus is enlisting in a war to fight. From the outset, we understand that we won't be standing still or remaining comfy. It's called our Christian walk. Applies change and movement implies some effort on our part. Jesus came to start a movement, not a stagnant, right? There's a sense that we understand that to be with Jesus is to be on the move and not stay put. So the theme this year for community group, we always have this little tradition of sort of picking a theme for the year. And the theme this year is quite simply get moving. Now, Andres and I came up with this, and one of our shared things is cycling. So, of course, it had to be a cycling thing. He referenced cycling a couple weeks ago. And this theme is a reminder that what we are doing here, even though we're stationary right now, is not stationary. 
What we are doing is something that, that involves movement inherently. Think about bikes for a second. Think about stationary bikes for a second. Stationary bikes are all the rage. Now, I know just showing this picture lays some guilt on some of you. I think most Christians have a low-grade guilt about not praying or reading their Bible enough. I think people who own a Peloton or some, some similar stationary bike, uh, some Nordic track, some of you own these, the, the skier thing that was big back in the day, it sits there and it calls to you, doesn't it? You said that when you bought me, you'd get into shape. And yet here I am, waiting, ready for you. So I know this may produce some low-grade guilt in you. Try to wipe that away and let that, let that not be in your brain. But think about stationary bikes and the, and the benefits they have. You know, what, you know what benefits they have? Tires don't wear out on a stationary bike. That's a really good thing. There's no threat of cars. Do you know how dangerous it is to ride a real bike on real streets? It's dangerous. Look around you. People are just not paying attention to their car. The other nice thing about stationary bikes is you control the climate. I mean, NorCal weather is famous for its fierceness, right? And you don't have to be out there in NorCal weather, right? You get to control the climate. It's a little bit chilly. I'm going to turn, whatever. Um, You can have ice water. You can have iced tea while you ride along. You can just be sipping something. Uh, Here's what's crazy. You can even be binge watching while you work out right? So you can get through whole like shows and seasons of things while you're working out. So lots of benefit to it. There is a downside though. There's lots of movement and no actual progress. If you're actually trying to go somewhere. I get that if you're working out, there's progress, okay? But if you are actually using the bike for transportation, stationary bikes are not for you. Pro tip. Maybe your Christian walk has felt more like a treadmill of late. Maybe there was a season where you thought, man, I was walking. There was lots of movement. I was still doing the same spiritual practices that I'd always done. But I just feel like I'm not actually going anywhere. Do you know what we say around the church? I hear this all the time. Pastor, can I meet with you? I'm stuck. I say, what does that mean? Tell me about that. And here's what sometimes, some variation, it will be this. I feel like I'm just going through the motions. Don't raise your hand, but you've been there. What worked in another season is not rich and full of life anymore. It's not growing you anymore. You don't feel like you're actually going anywhere. You might be sitting here this morning saying, this is what I do. I go to church on Sunday mornings. But truth be told, I feel like I'm just going through the motions. So we know what it is to be on a Christian walk that feels like a treadmill. It's not the life Jesus has for us. Stationary bikes are exponentially more controlled and convenient, and stationary bikes are exponentially less effective at actually moving. The word static... I was in Atlanta. I skipped out on one session to help kind of hone this message about a week ago. And the word static, I just kind of pulled it up on my computer. I took a screenshot. And the word static, think about this, lacking in movement, action, or change, especially in a way viewed as undesirable or uninteresting. Sometimes our life gets to a place where it's static. Here's what's fascinating. We can go through the motions on the outside for a long period of time before anyone knows the inner life that is stuck. 
We have the capability to come and do that. Pastors have the ability to preach for long periods of time while their inner life is stuck. So we know how to kind of put on the outward thing, whether it's at school or in the home or in the marriage or on the job or in our walk with God. Here's what's powerful about prayer. Is there any place in your prayer closet, meaning you're all alone, not a physical closet necessarily, but when you're all alone with God, is there any more place where you're naked before God? Question is, are you naked and unashamed? Or is there a nakedness and a shame that comes with that? I think that's some of what makes prayer so hard. There's no point in faking it with an all-knowing God. Talk about going through the motions. If that's all that it is, it'll be short-lived. Jesus' people are called to get moving, to not remain static. We follow Jesus. To be a disciple is with Jesus, and Jesus is on the move. He's alive and well. Again, back to this language, our walk is how we describe our life in him. Not our stand or our sit or our sleep. Sort of a tagline for this theme this year is this. Break away from static. Break away from being stopped, stuck, stationary. Stop the static by taking action. Now there's a little double ring to this word, isn't there? There's another way that we use static. And some of you are old enough to remember uh, what used to be called snowflakes on the TV. And you would have to, you know, we had like the bunny ear uh, antennas. And so one of my brothers would get up we're like, there, hold, stay right there. And like that guy would have to like try and watch TV while holding it because static was there. Long before iPhones, there was something called an iPod. And before an iPod was a transistor radio. And there you would kind of like turn this little dial and have this antenna and like, like try to find the place that, it's, that, that, that there's the least amount of static. Now, to bring it into modern times, how about this? How much patience do you have right now for a phone call that's echoey or cutting in like that? Zero! That's called static. We hate that. Moderns hate that. They're like this, useless. That's static, Right? We demand that we have a good signal going on our phones at all times. Now, here's the question. What is the noise or crackling or... uh, All right, let me try it again with no static. What is the noise or crackling or static that is blocking your communication with your Heavenly Father? I don't want you to tell me. I want you to sit with God and find out what that is. Begin to name those things that are blocking communication from the one you need to hear from the most. We all have it. Our communication with God and one another gets suddenly and strangely hijacked by static. Every friend group, every married couple, every parent child knows this. You're talking away and all of a sudden, the person's face changes. And you're like, wait, what just happened? 
whoa, this just got unsafe. This conversation just changed in a heartbeat. I'm not sure what happened. I think it's really wise to hit pause on the conversation because they're not listening to you in the way you think they are listening to you if you just plow ahead. To stop and say, hey, what's, what's going on? Can we like return to a safe zone here and try to get the communication going again? Because something just got hijacked. I'm not sure what it is. Sometimes that opens the door, by the way, for a child to say, uh, I have someone doing stuff to me at school, just bullying me and on my case at all times. And when you said that, it reminded me of something he said today. That opens up the door for communication and love and all kinds of stuff instead of just plowing ahead with get the dishes done. So static kind of comes in all of a sudden. Let me toss out a couple of thoughts. Maybe it's fear. Maybe entertainment is a static in your life. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's the past. Maybe the distant past you've never dealt with or thought about. Maybe it's the past as in 10 minutes ago in an argument you had with your boss or coworker. The world, the flesh, the devil, aren't these all barriers, blockers to our pure relationship with God? Of course they are. Amazon and Google. Amazon and Google are purveyors of static. They are like the local neighborhood drug dealers. <laughs> Just parceling out seemingly harmless static. One little swipe at a time. One little click at a time. I think part of everyone's weekly Sabbath is to not shop. Do your very best to not shop ever for a single day. Just go, nope, I'm not going to take extra time and look for that thing. But it's a good needed thing that solves, I know. But think about it. Google and Amazon, like just wildly distracting, cluttering, clouding our communication. Something harmless like that can rob us of what matters most in life and what actually is most valuable to us in life. So we can and must fight for pure devotion to God, hearing the undiluted word of God. So how do we do that? Back to our theme. We break away. Break away is a cycling term. By the way, Peloton, does anyone know what Peloton actually means? That's a famous brand of stationary bike. I've seen some Pelotons in, in homes in this group. Peloton is, what do you got? That's it. It's the group. That's right. I think it's French for group. But it's, it's the main pack of riders in, a, in, in any bicycling race. So think Tour de France, people in colorful Lycra. Okay, that's where, that's where we're at right now. They're riding along in the Peloton, right? And then a breakaway is when a solo rider or a group of riders goes off the front of the pack. I want you to think about breakaway in just a, a little bit for me. Um, first of all, is that all through the race this is happening. And so then the, the pack, uh, which is made up of teams, chooses, do we go and chase these people? Are they a threat to the overall win, or do we let them go? Because on certain stages of a bike race, it's okay to let the breakaway go. So there's this sort of cat and mouse thing going on the entire time. What a breakaway requires is intentionality. Hear me. No one accidentally rides off the front of a pack of cyclists in a, in, a, in a race. Whoops! Here I am, miles ahead of everyone. 
So it takes intentionality. On a team bus, the morning of every single race, depending on how people are feeling, what, this, what the situation is, all of that, there's, there's strategy going on. So it requires intentionality and it requires strategy. Hey, this is our race to win. This is a hill race. We're great at hills. Are you feeling it? I'm feeling it. All right, we're going we're gonna to break away. So there's strategy involved. There's intentionality that is involved. It also requires immense effort. In our passage today, Philippians 3, just look at verse 13. We're going to read more of the passage in a second, but here's what Paul writes. Famous passage. He says, but one thing I do, verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Don't you see a breakaway right there? Man, forgetting what, whatever's going on behind me, boom, this is my moment. I'm intentional. I'm, this is strategic. This is the time to ride away from the pack. Good things in cycling demand intentional, all-out effort. So it is in life. Winning ways come to those who aren't just cruising. If you cruise through your relationships, how do they go? Over time, the law of entropy, right? Eventually you drift. We tend to move away from people. We never accidentally fall into true intimacy. It's intentional. Requires effort. By the way, the only way to win a race is that sooner or later you must make your move. Sooner or later you have to ride away or else, catch this, you are only riding to finish not to win. Another famous one-liner from Paul. I run in such a way as what? That I may win. I don't want to just barely sneak into heaven. I don't want to just barely kind of get into my life and go, I made it. Man, I want to win. I want to run this thing. Oh, and one more thing. Cycling is a team sport. Looks can be deceiving. The media can be deceiving. The media always loves to pick one superstar. But Matt taught us this last week. Billy Graham had help. Paul had help. The Avengers have the other Avengers. I got a little lost on that part. But you get it. It's a team sport. There's no single rider who ever wins any stage race or makes any progress in any way without the support of a team. So we get moving together. To put it another way, you do not win at the Christian life alone. That's not how God wired it. So community groups, small groups, uh, life groups, whatever a church may call them, why do we see these all around? All different churches have some version of this. The church I attended uh, two weeks ago in Santa Rosa has these. The church I attended last week is a mega church from the South. They have these. Why do we do this? Why do we have small groups, community groups? Because it is the Bible-prescribed way of honing discipleship. We gather for worship. We break out into smaller groups, into life on life, into home, into community. Jesus left Christians the one great non-negotiable marker to finish the mission, and that is to make disciples, right? Matthew chapter 28. 
So here's food for thought. We are to make disciples, not just be disciples. You might be in a place in your Christian walk where you, you are a disciple, you have been a disciple, and God is nudging you. There's way more. From the outset, you weren't called just to be a follower, but to help make followers. Don't just be a disciple, make disciples. And be a disciple, don't just make disciples. What does that mean? That's people who go and try to make disciples without actually being a disciple in the first place. You know what Jesus called them? Sons of hell. If you don't want Jesus calling you a son of hell, be a disciple before you try to make disciples. He says you're leading them in all the wrong ways. Be a disciple, but don't just be a disciple. Make disciples. The truth is our love for God will prompt us to do this even if we aren't feeling it. The love of God will actually prompt us to move towards our neighbors, even if we're introverts, even if our neighbors bug us, even if our neighbors are uncomfortable. The love of God compels us toward other people. If you ever find that marker going on in your life, stop and praise God in that moment. That's the Spirit of God working in you. I love it when my kids are feeling it and obey me. But perhaps their love and trust for me and honor for me is actually seen more when they obey when they're not feeling it. And they go, you know what? I do not feel like doing this. I'm like, I know. And they're like, but I'm going to do it. Inside them all. That's so good. Because that's I, I want them to learn that from their heavenly father. That's, that's me a lot of the time. We don't just make disciples when we're feeling it. We obey anyways. So disciples, disciple. Think about Matthew 28. Go. That's an action-oriented word, isn't it? Go and make disciples. Don't stay put and wait for willing candidates to show up at your door. Go where? Go into all the earth. Who does that mean? That means that anyone, any place, any time is fair game to be made a disciple of. So go. All nations. No place in her person is off limits. Baptize and teach. That's a tie, by the way, back to the church. Baptize and teach says, do this ministry in conjunction with the local church. Don't just go off and do this on your own. Community groups are an amazing place to expand your circle of help and those you are called to help. Even in a smaller church, it's possible to come in and have a hard time breaking in. That nebulous thing of breaking into community. One of the things that community groups provide is a set group of people. In simple terms, Neighborhood Bible, neighborhood Bible Church defines community groups uh, 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 by, by this. Okay, ready? It's fellowship around the word. To be a community group is to be in fellowship around the word. Let me break that down just very quickly. Most of our CGs meet weekly, so they meet regularly. They do more than Bible study, hence the word fellowship. And yet, they don't do less than Bible study. So fellowship around the word. What that means is this. Always tied to what we're doing, we want to tie it to the eternal word of God that speaks life into us, that speaks our identity into us, that speaks our calling into us. You have been a part of groups that have devolved into mere fellowship groups. Is fellowship wrong? No. But you can fellowship apart from Christ. 
you can gather and be friends and kind of be a, a little group. But I also would say this, groups that devolve simply into Bible study with no sense of fellowship often builds, is very skilled at building Pharisees. More and more knowledge, more and more potential puffing up without actual love and hard work of applying it in your community. So fellowship around the word is how we define that. So how should we do this? Let me take you to Philippians 3.12. I told you it would take a long time. I'm almost done. Hang with me. Philippians 3.12 says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. All right, let me pause there for one second. First of all, here's the good news. If you're perfect, you are exempt from community groups this week. Okay? The whole year. You're done. You don't need to be in, but Paul's not perfect, so for the rest of us who aren't perfect, we, we, we press on. He says, I press on to make it my own. Think about this. Elsewhere, it says we are to work out our salvation. This always involves effort and other people. Those of you not married yet, probably the number one person God will use in your sanctification process is your spouse. There's no, one, there's no closer neighbor that you're called to love in God's name than your spouse. So for better or for worse, uh, God uses other people to sanctify us. What is sanctification? Sanctification, quite simply, is our gradual growing righteousness. Our gradual growing righteousness. That never ends. Paul's not perfect because he's not dead but he's being made more perfect each and every day, right? And he's cooperating with that. Here's what's really beautiful. Notice Paul's motiv- motivation. Why does he do this? Why does he press on? He says it, because Jesus has made me his own. Paul's salvation, hear this clearly. Paul's salvation is safe and secure. Do not, do not, do not join a community group today to earn God's salvation or favor. That's a horrible motivation, and it makes no sense. It will not happen. What Paul's describing here, he's put right in in Scripture together, justification is our declared righteousness before God. Do you see it? Jesus Christ has made me his own. It's done, settled. I'm not working for that. I already have the reward I would want the most anyway. Now, from that... I cooperate with what God's doing in my life, my sanctification, my gradual growing righteousness. I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call that is in Christ Jesus. If there ever was get moving language, it's right there. This straining, this pressing on. The Christian life is hard and full of change and not comfortable. Yay, you're doing it right. Good job. Keep going. Let me speak to four categories of people. See if you find yourself in one of these. Number one, if you're not a Christian today, become a follower of Jesus Christ today simply by putting your trust in him. It says he stands at the door and knocks, and he'll become friends with you by faith. Step one to get moving is to follow Jesus. Jesus, when he called his first followers, he called people right out of their workplace. 
tax collectors who were on the farthest end of religious people's mindset of who would ever be in God's kingdom dropped what they were doing to follow him and take on his way of life. So if you're not a Christian today, that's the invitation to you. By faith, in the quietness of your own heart, right now you say, Jesus, I want that. I trust that. I want to be your own. Would you make me your own? Hear me. He will. In an instant. It's called being born again. Number two, maybe you're a new Christian or a solo Christian. A new Christian or a solo Christian. You're not really alone, but you're living alone. If you're a new Christian or a solo Christian, there's no better next step than becoming a member. I want to call you to membership at this local church. As a member of this church, a part of this body, a defined part of this local expression of the church of Jesus Christ, you will be commanded in the Lord, invited in the Lord to enter into community with other people. So community groups are part of the the heartbeat of our church because relationships are so important. Most people here would say this, the most important thing to me are my relationships. At least that's what you'd want it to be. Community groups have a way of taking our good intentions and putting them on the calendar. Saying, I'm going to take what I think is most valuable and put it on my weekly calendar. Break away from static. It's intentional. It's strategic. It's saying, whether I'm feeling it or not, I'm showing up to group this Wednesday at such and such a time. Number three, tired or ineffective or distracted Christians. Tired or ineffective or distracted. Here's the call. Put me in, coach. You were not made to coast or burn out, or not matter. You do matter. And you do have a calling. You certainly weren't made to devote your life to scrolling and shopping endlessly. Amazon and Google. CGs might be the place that you discover your role on the team. Fourth, to maturing, growing Christians. To maturing, growing Christians, I would say this. A, you already know you aren't perfect, and you have much need to grow. That's what the Spirit of God wells up in us. We never arrive. We never feel like we've arrived. We already know that what makes a great community is all the community being great. So thank you for participating with all that you are and using this space to disciple and be discipled. We have a team of people who for years, some new, some old, have been devoting themselves to discipling in the context of community groups. Some wear the title CG leader because they're leading the group, but much discipleship goes on in other ways. Let me invite the band up right now, and let me direct your attention to something that's going to start coming around to you right now, um, and that is the Next Step cards. So these cards are going to be handed to you, and what I would like from you is I would like you to respond while I'm talking, while the band's singing, use this moment where you're sort of captive and sitting here and have a card and have a pen. And what I want from you is to just get your name, phone number, email, whatever kind of the best way is to to reach, reach back out to you and contact you. 
And there's two options here. One is I want to join one of these groups. The other one is I am already attending one of these groups. Do you know that as shepherds of the church, we are to know well the condition of our flock? So rather than take for granted that I assume people are in a group, I want to be able to see that and say, yep, they're, they're doing that. You say, Dave, what if it's not an NBC community group? That's fine. I would hope that you'd want to connect with people here, but I get it. There are some ministries going on that you go, man, I've got this men's group I've been meeting with for 10 years, and, and I'm doing that. I say, great, man, just check that off. Let me know that. And then on the very bottom, it says this, contact me about hosting a community group in my home or starting or leading a group. So you're going to have these. There's a little QR code if you prefer digital, so you can do it that way. But the action item with these, by the way, is to take them right afterwards when we break out into the fellowship time. We're going to have the different CG leaders just sitting around those round tables. Um, If you have a question about a group, you can come to the Ballards and say, hey, I see that you guys meet on Zoom. Um, I had a question about this or that. Hey, Nemix, I see you guys meet on Fridays. I get off work at such and such a time. Is that still work for me? Let me just make my once-a-year plug for why we do lecture lab groups. Most of our groups follow the sermon series, and here's why. There's a very specific reason for it. Let me give you a couple of benefits from the lecture lab format. Number one is it takes your effort to grow and disciple others. God, I want to grow and disciple others. It takes your effort to grow and disciple others, and it hitches them to the engine of your church. In other words, your church is already moving in this direction. We just talked about 2 Timothy. So it's kind of hitching it to a program they're already doing. It also takes advantage of the dozens of people in your church who are exposed to the same material. The church is born in community. The church thrives in community. Your personal Lord and Savior is actually the Savior of the whole church. You thrive when you are reading and learning and discovering theological and practical issues with other church members. Here's another one. You will actually be more attentive on a Sunday morning sermon if you think you're actually going to use this in a few days. I have some college students sitting in the front row. If they're taking notes and the teacher says, hey, make sure you get this. This will be on the test on Friday. Guess what everyone does? They lean in. If you think you'll actually talk about this and need this in a few days, you'll actually benefit more from Sunday mornings. Finally, let me give you one more. Community groups has a way of putting the work and ministry of the church in the hands of everyday Christians. It spreads the joy and the workload. All of a sudden, it's not just a pastor or a few elders or a few community group leaders doing the coaching and the prayer and the ministering, but it's the whole body of Christ working together, discipling and being discipled and caring for one another. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your call on our life. We thank you, Lord, for the power of one another. And God, I pray that right now you would help us to take steps that you're calling us to. God, I praise you for people who are so clearly on the move. Their lives are going somewhere because of you. God, would you help us get undistracted or unstuck 
in the patterns that we currently are in. We look to you and lean on you for help. In Jesus' name, amen.